All right, like I said, I knew James as a sermon series was going to be tough before we jumped into it head first last week. But there was a question last week in particular that actually made me realize um, how dramatically I had underappreciated just how much baggage we, and I mean all of us, not just as, like as kind of Christians with maybe a church background and or not Christians, just Westerners in general, how much baggage we bring to the table, pun intended, and how, much, how many weeds we actually need to kind of cut through before we can swing our axe freely and chop down the tree and like really get to the main point. Um, one of you texted last week uh, something that like was literally, like I've been thinking about this all week and so much of the sermon this morning is, is tailored to this. It's less of a question, more of like a, a comment based on the questions that we were talking about and asking. And it says, that the blessings described in this passage seem so conditional on our own strength of faith and love. I don't know how to unlearn this. Whoever you were, thank you for, thank you for asking that. Because if that was the case for the first dozen or so verses in the, in the book of James, um, having just read 19 through 26... Uh, at best, it probably feels like a stream of consciousness that James is articulating. Like, what in the world does looking in a mirror have anything to do? And why is it a natural face? Why am I forgetting? What does that have to do with being blessed? How is this conditional or not? Like, there's so much there, right? In fact, there's so much here that, like, so I have this, uh, I do this when I do a sermon series. It's just a, a journal with just that book. It's not the whole Bible. It's just this book. So this is my notebook with James. And there's no, you can't read any of it, but you can see all of the um, uh, crazy jotting down and, and trying to draw arrows to try to understand this myself because this is, a, this is one of those passages where, um, well, again, to quote Inigo Montoya, uh, this word does not mean what you think it means, right? <laughs> like there is a sense that, and, and it's so close to what it means, but the difference is so important and it makes all the difference in the world. And so this morning, I want to I lay a foundation for unlearning, uh, how to unlearn the conditional on our own strength and faith of faith and love that, we, that is really valid and understandable that we would hear when we read this passage, right? So let's, let's jump into this and, and, and start at the, with the very first word of, of, of this passage this morning. James says, know this, my beloved brothers, know this, right? James is trying to remind us of something. He's trying to help us to know something. So what is this? What is the this in know this? Well, he says in the next word, beloved brothers. Know this, beloved brothers. In other words, you could summarize this as assurance. Oh, and Josh, maybe... We're a, little bit, we're a little bit ahead there. So don't want to uh, spoil alert. I, don't, I didn't include a spoiler alert for where we're going here. Um, I have a lot of visual aids this morning, and I'm really excited about them. So excited I have an iPad with my own visual aids. So it's going to be really fun. But before we get there, I need you to hear that what James is trying to get us to know is an assurance of our belovedness. Okay? This is a strange assurance to us especially how he gets there, it's strange to us because our knowing and the way that we think that we know things is very strange to James, right? We've been influenced and live in, again, pun intended, in light of the enlightenment and rationalism 
of Rene Descartes who says, I think, therefore I am. And, and so we have a way of knowing that is very, very different from what the, the assumptions that James was bringing to the text when he wrote this. And that's, that's great for scientific advancement, but it's terrible for blessed assurance. It's terrible for knowing that God loves us. It's what we bring to James is one-dimensional, right? We, 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 we think that knowing is about mere information or data. It's deductive reasoning and, and evidence, right, and proof. But it's at the, that kind of knowing is good and it's part of it. But it comes at the expense of other kinds of knowing, right? We all, we, we, we're familiar with them. We're just not used to thinking of them in this vein. For example, intuition. It's a kind of knowing. Gut. There's there's experience, there's, there's communal collective wisdom and tradition, there's a knowing that happens through that, through ritual, through community, right? Never mind the kind of knowing that comes from revelation. The kind of knowing that we are used to applying to things like this is not the kind of knowing that the Bible operates off of, okay? I've talked with many of you about this word and how it's, how it's being used today, deconstruction right? A lot of you who have deconstructed and feel unmoored or unanchored, you, that, that, is, that is made worse in a lot of ways, and I want to validate you because evangelicalism, which is highly influenced by fundamentalism, assumes, for the most part, this kind of knowing, this kind of modernist enlightenment way of knowing, and therefore it only has basically two ways to handle and deal with things like doubt or a lack of assurance, the first is we just kind of beat ourselves up more, right? We tell ourselves or we tell each other that you're worms, you're, you're, you're sinners. And there's this, again, there's an element of truth that like, yeah, we're sinners. But that truth is not intended to beat us up. We beat ourselves up because we are trying to kind of pulverize our hearts, to soften our hearts so that mercy feels new again, right? What if that wasn't necessary? What if confession was enough and not flagellation. The other way that we typically deal with this is like we just binge content, right? We find another a really gifted preacher like Tim Keller or something, and, and they, like, man, they just frame it in such a different way. This information, again, is, is comforting me and giving me assurance and confidence, and I feel good again, but it never lasts, does it? You kind of need more. You got to find the next really cool Christian book, so this morning I want to offer a slightly different approach, well, a very different approach, and, and to do it a little bit differently than maybe I'm, I normally preach, right? So I'm going to be, like, be hyper-focused on the assurance piece, and there's some stuff in the passage that I'm just not going to address. I'm saving for later because James addresses it more later. And also this is going to be a little bit more teachy than preachy this morning. Some of you are like, oh, thank God. But what I mean by that is, like, this is going to be a little bit more explanatory and a little bit more, a little less inspirational. Like, I kind of want to offer, uh, I want to rearrange the furniture in our brains a little bit to see this a little bit differently because it's going to pay major dividends as we go in this, in this sermon series. And like I said, I'm going to have many visual aids, and I'm kind of beside myself excited about them this morning. So uh, let's talk about the first one, right? Because how James approaches knowing, how the Bible approaches knowing, how the Western world pre-16th, pre-17th century approaches knowing, and the rest of the world outside of the West today, how to actually know completely is this. 
You're like, okay, three points on a sermon, three points on a triangle. Come on, Brett. No, this is real. This is not just something I made up, okay? You could call this triperspectivalism. You can, there's all kinds of educational theory around this, but this is like a, a way of understanding and knowing that is actually complete and fully human. It's not just this cognitive enlightenment stuff. So let's walk through this. There is a truth, there is an objective reality outside of us that we can know to some degree. So that's where we start at the top, knowing. And this describes what is true, okay? This is why revelation is what is true, and this is why we operate off of the basis of this as Christians, right? That flows into, based on what we, is true, who we are. And who we are being is our experience of and our perspective on what is true, as well as, and here's the third point, how we live, like life in the world, situ- in the world situationally. You could kind of describe these also as normative, existential, and situational. I'm, these, this is my, no be do is much easier, so that's where we're going this morning, okay? What is true, who we are, and how we live. When we have those, all of those itches scratched based on a given knowing and a thing to know, a truth, it's a a completely different experience. Let's let's fill that out with an example, and let's talk about honey. If you didn't know, honey is actually just bee spit and pollen, okay? That's surprising because it tastes amazing, but that's basically what it is, and if you're a biologist, I'm sure it's more complicated than that. You can tell me about it later, but like, just, just humor me, okay? Because it is bee spit in pollen, when we experience it, we like it or not, our experience of it, whether that is a good or a bad one, determines are we a honey person or not? Are we, do we have good tastes or do we not? <laughs> okay? And if we have good taste, if we are a honey person, then we are going to put it on all the things that make sense for it to put on, right? Like IT or ice cream, like especially fried ice cream. Oh, come on now. Preaching to myself. But anyway, uh, uh, a peanut butter sandwich, maybe, okay? Um, if you are in Colorado, and I can't remember the name, it's totally spacing on the, the pizza restaurant. Bojo's. Bojo's, yes. Y'all are like, okay, we know Bojo's. You dipped the pizza crust in that. It's kind of weird to everybody else, but it's right, okay? <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Okay, now, now, that's breaking it down, but let me tell you how we put this all together. At one point, definitely before we had kids, um, Hannah and I, I actually got to uh, officiate a wedding between two commercial airline pilots, and they put me on their buddy fly list, which means I got to fly anywhere in the world that that airline flew for the cost of taxes. Uh, And so what we did, and and on standby, but it was fine, it's great. Hannah and I flew to London and then to Greece. Um, because she studied abroad in Greece. We love Greece. It, I, was like, I was nerding out about all the New Testament history there. It's exactly what you would think a pastor would do, right? Um, toward the end of that trip, we stayed in this amazing small town called Nafplio. And it was the kind of like vacation town where, the, where if you were Greek, you went to vacation, but if you were America, if you were American, you didn't know about. And so it was like very not touristy. And we stayed in this B&B, the building of which was hundreds, and not just like a couple hundred, hundreds of years old, right? And there's this amazing like 3,000-year-old fortress at the top of the cliffs above us, and every morning for breakfast in this B&B, we had Greek yogurt. 
And, and I'm not talking about the kind of Greek. It's not the same as what you find at King Supers, right? Um, and, and it had honey on it. Let me tell you, this is the kind of uh, honey and Greek yogurt that is so thick when you, when you put your spoon into it to take a bite and you take the bite out of it, the honey doesn't start dripping down the Greek yogurt. Like you could eat it with a fork. Is, it was incredible. But not only is that, it was, I mean, it was delicious and just like a duh, it's Greek, Greek yogurt. The honey was local. And what I didn't know until we started asking, like, why is this honey so good, is that the entire region around Nephleo is, is mostly orange orchards. And not just any orange orchards, but a particular kind or, or uh, genus of orange that um, is much better suited to grow on the coasts of Greece because of that climate and the, the saltiness of the air. And so this honey, and, and not like the kind of oranges that are like mass-produced in Florida, right? This honey was at once sweet and citrusy and a little bit salty. And it was incredible. I've never had honey like it. I know more about honey than Wikipedia does. That's actually true. Because the kind of honey that we're talking about that you can learn about or know about on Wikipedia is just knowing. You, have, you haven't tasted it, and you haven't lived it. You know what I mean? Okay. Let's, let's, let's go a little bit further here. Let's talk about what it means to know the gospel, right? We know that what is true is that Jesus died for our sins in love and mercy for us, and then his resurrection is a down payment on the resurrection we can look forward to spending eternity with him. That is the truth of the gospel, right? As a result of what is true, because of what he has done, because it is finished, we are in this weird intermediate stage of sinner and saint. We are what Martin Luther calls uh, simul justus et peccator, which is Latin, probably butchered Latin, for simultaneously a sinner and justified, or justified and sinner, okay? We are humble hypocrites, even, right? That is who we are, but we are loved. We are broken and beloved, uh, God's broken and beloved people. As a result of who we are, by living out who we are, God says and calls us to love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself, okay? That is how we live. And there is an aspect that until we have lived in that way, we don't actually fully know the goodness and the beauty of the gospel, right? But let's put this together like we did with the honey, right? Gospel means good news. This is actually news that's way too good to be true. Or at least it feels that way. I mean, just imagine that every longing you experience, every sadness, every grief, every heartache, and every hurt you've experienced is not what you want because that's actually not the way any of life is supposed to be. The rest of the world is not supposed to live like that. All of creation is not supposed to be defined by that experience. Ourselves, we are not supposed to be defined by that experience. And that the, the root and fundamental problem with you and with me and with all of creation itself is this thing called sin that is there because we first sinned and because we doubted God's love for us. 
because we doubted the truth of who he is and who he has declared and said we, who we are by naming us and creating us in his image in the first place. But then, rather than lose out on everything good, like we actually deserve and should, God graciously becomes and subjects himself to all of our suck and everything about the world that we have ruined. God said, like, okay, I'm in. What? The only one who didn't deserve it did it. He enters into creation to right our wrongs and rescue us from ourselves. Isn't that all he wants us to do is to actually live in the light of that truth and and, and live as the heirs of the inheritance he's given us to enjoy him? To, To invite our neighbors to do the same? Like, for real? Good news. That doesn't cut it. It's a very different kind of knowing. It's a very different kind of news when it, has, it is both knowing, being, and doing all together. Now, this is, this is the knowing that we're called to. I want to, and, and also, by the way, this is like what it means to know as a human person. Like, this is anthropological. This is how people know, not necessarily Christians, right? This is just a human thing. But how we hear James, and this is part of what like, was clear, especially last week, and is, is valid in how we even me reading this, of course, I, I get this too. And so I want to I I map onto this what we are bringing to the table so that we can then kind of deconstruct it a little bit, okay? Here's how we typically read James, which is through a, the lens of this kind of legalistic assurance. Josh. Cool, there it is, cool. Um, and I put assurance in air quotes because it's not very assuring. It's actually pretty crushing, Okay. God's word, or like, for example, we're in James, so we can say, James, like, what is true, instead of initially and primarily receiving it or hearing it, we, we, we hear through this lens of achieving our dignity, value, and worth. In other words, we obey in order to be loved. That's what, it mean, that's what conditional love means, right? And so, how we live is to self-justify ourselves. We achieve our dignity, value, and worth. And so we, we seek to earn that from God because we don't, we haven't fully tasted how gracious his love is and non-conditional. I wanna, I wanna, let, me, let me actually take that back a little bit. I want to say it's not necessarily because. I think we want that and sometimes we don't know necessarily how to apprehend that. Does that make sense? But what that results with and how that impacts us, instead of hearing that as good news, it, to the degree that we believe that we are successful in meeting that bar, that standard, that law, is the degree to which we are either inflated or deflated. We either puffed up or beat down. And that's why you have good days and bad days and a lot of in between, right? That is, now, that's walking through this. Let's apply this to honey. Right? Because honey is bee spit and pollen, to achieve our dignity, value, and worth, we're not just going to put it on the things that make sense. We're going to put it on everything. We're going to see all of life through the lens of honey. Right? And who we are as a result of that is diabetic. Right? I, I initially had diabetic or Debbie Downer. 
Um, because if you just if you gorge on it, you're just not going to like it anymore, so you'll stop eating it. But for simplicity's sake, it's diabetic, right? If you're like, Brad, I'm not sure that totally maps onto there and makes sense, you're right. This is dumb. Also, so was the last slide we just looked at. Like, that doesn't make sense either. It makes love, not love. It makes grace, not grace. It makes it merit. It makes it work. It makes it earning. Okay? So, that's foundation. What James is trying to address is this. What he's trying to talk to his audience, the, the original audience about, is an empty assurance. Verse 26, this is what he means when he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. The word worthless is also translated as empty, as false. The other place in the New Testament that it is, it is, um, uh, it is used is in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, when Paul is saying that if the resurrection didn't happen, we do this in vain. We, we live as Christians empty, emptily. If it's not true, in other words, we, we're, we're dumb. Like why? Live in light of what is true. So let's kind of trace this. And this is like, I'm doing this because trying to do, get to the same place through the different arguments and like how James is articulating this, it would be just like completely lo as lost as my arrows here. Okay? And so visually, it makes a lot more sense. He says the word that we hear and receive functions like a mirror, right? It reflects back to us things, either where we are misaligned in who we are with how we live or, and or who we are because of who God is and who God has declared us to be. But if we are hearers only, then we are looking intently at our natural face and we forget who we are in Christ, because our knowing is incomplete. This is not to say we are not in Christ. He's talking about knowing that we are in Christ, being assured that we are in Christ. He's saying that who we are, if we are hearers only and not also doers, then we are deceiving ourselves. We are living falsely. And, when, and as we are angry and or unbridled in our speech, in our not doing, that leads to wickedness. I know that most of you heard, because this is how I read it too, that when he says in verse 21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, you're like, oh man, that sounds like Las Vegas and what should, happens in Las Vegas should stay in Vegas. No, he's talking about what happens in Congress. He's talking about what happens on social media. He's talking about what happens when we respond in our speech in ways that are not good news, that is not gracious or humble or loving or kind. He says it's wickedness. And then he says, and this is, this is one of the most fascinating parts, he says it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. The word righteousness, we typically think like as a synonym of holiness, like moral goodness, behavior, that's actually not the primary way it's used in, in Scripture. It's used primarily to kind of illustrate and describe shalom. It's, it's a describing flourishing, peace and calm, human, being more fully human, both individually and as a society. In other words, he's saying this persecution that you are responding to in kind is not going to do the thing that you want it to do. Like, not only is it 
He's saying, not only is it like bad in a moral sense, like God wants you to not do that, he's saying it's also not going to do the thing that you want it to do. <laughs> it's not going to bring about the kingdom that you expected that was going to come and, and be here, right? He's saying it doesn't even do what you think it'll do. It's empty. Now, it is important as we're looking at this to ask, why did they slide into this? Because if they're not Western and shaped by the Enlightenment like we are, do they not know this and understand this? Well, this is why one of my favorite quotes of all time is, and I don't even know where this is from, but all disappointment is the result of unmet, expecta uh, unmet expectations. They were very disappointed, like existentially disappointed, because they expected that when Jesus said his kingdom would be coming and that the Holy Spirit would come in power in the book of Acts, right, that that would transform the political arrangement with Rome, that they would no longer, longer be a vassal, Israel would not be a vassal state of Rome, constrained in who they are as God's people. They expected their loved ones, friends or family, to see Jesus as the, as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the promised anointed one that, that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. They expected the Jewish leaders that they looked up to and, and formed and shaped them when they were younger as kids would eventually come around and embrace them again. And they were disappointed in all accounts. Rome barely noticed, right? Instead of their loved ones seeing the light, they were instead ostracized by them as heretics. Actually, like worse than the Samaritans. Like James is writing this to them as they have been scattered by persecution and are living among Samaritans, the people that they were looked down their nose at previously. Now they're living among them and being treated like them by their own family and friends. What coming around the lead, religious leaders did was not good. I read this last week from Acts chapter 8, verse 3. This is the context that James is writing into. It says that they were ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. I mean, who wouldn't be disappointed? They're thinking to themselves, you know what? You know, this, this whole winsome strategy... Yeah, that's for the birds. Um, maybe, actually, love, what love your neighbor means is protecting, like, like telling them the truth whether they like it or not, and having the faith enough to throw off our oppressors, to stop cowering behind false pietism and humility, and to face Goliath as David did. And James, basically, this entire letter is him naming and anticipating all of the ways that a young, passionate church is either actively talking about or tempted to hear the gospel without doing it. Now, in the midst of all that, we've got to go back to the beginning of this, of this, this passage. He says, know this, beloved brothers. He starts with who they are to him. This letter naming and anticipating all the ways a young, passionate church might fall off the deep end, right, is starting with belovedness. This letter is coming, is not coming down on them, but looking out for them. It is offering wisdom and love 
not a threat of lost salvation. Okay? In that same vein, let's look at how we might be experiencing ourselves an empty assurance in our context and in our time and place, right? How we might be tempted, right? Let's talk about empty vocation. Empty vocation or maybe even empty effort, empty work, right? We are made, what is true is that we are made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. The image of, that, that God is a creator. He created everything in six days and then rested on the seventh. To be made in that image means that we are made and created to fill the earth and subdue it. That's the cultural mandate in Genesis 1:26. And we are called to weekly rest and Sabbath. It's why it's the second commandment, to keep the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And so what it looks like to hear only and not do is to burn out. It is because as we are not keeping the Sabbath and allowing less holy priorities to supersede the second commandment, we find ourselves on a hamster wheel because that's how we're living. In fact, maybe even better than a hamster wheel would be uh, to live as if we are God and not finite creatures. And that will lead to burnout. It also, by the way, doesn't do the thing that we want it to do. It is highly ineffective to work without rest, to work without weekly worship. It leaves you stagnant and disconnected from God and others. And you are wondering, why am I doing all this? And that's a good question. Because that should lead us to understanding, like, what is missing? Because this is not what we're made for. Does that make sense? Let's do another one, because this is fun, right? Cool. Let's talk about empty contentment, like, Coming to church, now money. Cool. Great. What is true is that God provides, okay? To the degree that we are meager or non-existent in our financial giving, in our not doing, we are hearing only, we are looking intently, and that changes, that is how we, li how we live is through this kind of scarcity mindset. That's functionally what that is. That's how you sum it up. And it doesn't it bleeds over into all kinds of other things. You will not just be miserly with your money. You'll be miserly with your time. You'll be miserly with your vulnerability with other people. You'll be miserly with the effort you exert for the good of others, for the love of your neighbor. And that doesn't lead to having enough. It leads to the opposite. It leads to never risking or having enough. And it leaves you, leaves us filled with worry and anxiety, Right? And you guys, like, I, by the way, if you're visiting, like, everybody else knows, like, I don't talk about money a whole lot from up here because, like, this is something that we are probably most sensitive to hearing through a legalistic lens, which is that, like, you're a terrible person um, because you don't give enough. You're a terrible person. That's not the reason. <laughs> it's weird good news. I know, a strange community. I hear, me, I, I hear you, right? That, that exhortation to give generously, when you see that in Scripture, it is not just because it's the right thing to do. That's what is true. And that's when we are hearing only through the lens of what is true and not also what is good. In other words, how we live. And also what is satisfying, which is who we are. You see how this is going? And so this brings us back, and, and let's go back to the, the, the next slide of uh, empty grace, right? James is implying that hearing only and not doing 
is only going to reinforce the root temptation that gets you to the not doing in the first place, which is identity amnesia. We forget who we are. When you look in the mirror, it's really temporary. You got to do it again and again and again and again. It doesn't stick because we're not living it out. To illustrate this, I have one more of the empty grace charts that I'm going to use to illustrate this with the help of Simba from The Lion King. Okay? Simba is made in the Imago Mufasa. Right? This is true. He is, he is Mufasa, the king of, of the Pride Lands, his son. When he fled, okay, fleeing is understandable, right? After his dad was killed. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, it's a really old movie by now, you guys. Um, there's a point where that's really valid and understandable, but there's also a point where he did have a choice to return, to live as Mufasa's heir, as the king. But instead, he was binge-eating slugs and, and hanging out with unsavory friends and company, Simone and Pumbaa. Turns out they're, pretty, they're all right, right? But he was not living like the lion that he was. He was acting, he was, self -dece he was deceiving himself. Right? He was living as a pig. As a result of that, that didn't do the thing that he wanted it to do. Hyenas took over, and the Pride Lands started starving, and he knows this because uh, you know, Nala comes and finds him unexpectedly and starts giving him one massive guilt trip, some legalistic uh, assurance there for sure, um, because how he was living was Hakuna Matata, right? which means no worries, no problems. It was running from his responsibility, not living as he was called, he forgot who he was as a result. And you know, it, just in case it wasn't implicit, like obvi implicitly obvious, um, immediately after Nala confronts him, he runs away because he's overwhelmed and he's realizing all of these things and he has this crazy acid trip in the safari plains, right? Um, where Mufasa's spirit is speaking down to him and what does he say? Remember. Thank you, okay, gosh, okay, cool. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. That was the basis for which he was, he then leaves and acts like the one true king, behaves and does like the one true king, and goes and fights Scar and his hyenas, right? Simba, his due, like the king you are, was to reclaim the throne, but our remembering is not having the courage to fight Scar and retake Pride Rock. It is to persevere in Christ's likeness as an outflow of who we are in Christ. In other words, to follow him, right? Christianity was first labeled as the way because it wasn't just a set of doctrinal beliefs that Christians believed. It was also how they lived. It was the way of Jesus, okay? All right. I'm going to get to the Q&A in just a second. Here's where, here's where I'm going to end because I want to come back to if you're like, okay, that sounds good, but I still don't see that in James, like what he's advocating and calling them into. Let's reread verses 21 and 25. Therefore, put all away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, right, that first leg on the triangle, which is able to save your souls. Right? It has that power because it's truth. It's true. It's able to make you gods, to reconcile you with him. But the one who looks into the perfect law, not just at his natural face in the mirror, right, but looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, 
and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts and implied and remembers, he will be blessed in his doing. That's a gospel assurance. So let's see how this maps out onto our triangle here too. The law of liberty is what is true. The law that Jesus satisfied on the cross to set us free, not just to become beloved, God's beloved, but also to live and to persevere as his beloved sons and daughters. So when we hear and receive with meekness that beloved assurance of who we are based on what is true, we will be quick to listen and slow to speak or slow to be anger, angry. To the degree that we live that out, we will persevere And that is the way that we will live our life, in the way. And when it says that you will be blessed in his, this this person will be blessed in his doing, it means he'll be happy, not rewarded. That's how we normally read this this part and and blessing like in the sentence. Like this is not a promise that God is going to conditionally reward you for checking the moral box. He's saying that you are living as God has declared you to be as his son or daughter in Christ. That this is actually better and amazing, and really, really good news. The word doing, and he says not being hearers only, but being doers also, is also used like in Greek, in the Greek language, when you are doing a, uh, a classical piece of music, but not in performing it, in writing it. There's an emphasis and a tone in the, what we translate as doing that is almost like making. In other words, it has a sense of, of completing or fulfilling. What James is saying is not, don't just do this because the law says so. I mean, look, it might be a good idea to start there, okay? He's saying, but don't only do it because the law says so. Consummate your assurance by living it out. Some of you are familiar with... Uh, C.S. Lewis, who talks about the same dynamic, the same doing, uh, but in regards to love instead of wisdom. On the Psalms, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. So to parallel this, right? Our assurance is incomplete and insufficient for the world we live on, if we're honest, until it is acted upon. And so receiving the word is made complete or it's fulfilled, kind of it backfills into our assurance of our belovedness and reinforces our dignity, value, and worth as and to the degree that we live it out. Cool, huh? I'm going to get to our question, so if you have any, I have either so wowed or overwhelmed you that we, okay, we have one now, great. Um, do you see how important this is to, to how we read and understand James and also how we understand any imperative or exhortation in, the, in Scripture? Like, this is really good news that it's actually bigger and maybe more complicated than we thought, okay? Here's a question. Uh, thoughts on the phrase, God doesn't want you to be happy, that I've heard time and again. How does blessed equal happy fit into this? Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. Um, so uh, actually, a, I think I've heard Tim Keller say this uh, multiple times, that God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. 
think less dichotomy in terms of either or and more order, right? That happiness is actually a fruit and a product of holiness. Actually, uh, Josh, if you go back to we'll be blessed, right? The holiness is in the persevering. And the result from there is we will be blessed. He will be, you will be blessed in your doing, right? It's, it's more about the order and how much, like which is primary in terms of how we live. If we live to be happy, that means we are living according to our natural face, like who we are naturally apart from the redemption we have in Christ. And that's going to, that's not, that's not a mago day, right? That's not living that out. Okay, I'm going to do one more because that was a little longer than I intended. If you have other questions, feel free to send them in, and I'll do my best to respond to them and or, you know, play the, hey, can we grab coffee card uh, over the text to it? And let, like, let's do it, okay? Um, where does unconditional love fit on the triangle? Hmm. That's what is true. That's, that's God, right? This triangle is not describing whether or not God loves us, but to the degree that we experience an assurance thereof. If this, if this still is like, I don't, there's a lot of arrows, Brad, and I know you like pictures, I like pictures too, but I like them with less words. I get it, let's talk. This is something I'm, I'm like, there are a lot of pastors I talk to who are like, how do we translate this? And I'm like, I don't know, here's my best attempt. So it's possible this is not as clear as it could be. So let's just talk it out and process it. So, all right. All right, I lied one more. Uh, I think what you said is some Christians are distorting living out the gospel when they tell their neighbors the truth regardless if they like it. Do they get that? Some Christians are distorting living out the gospel. Um, I think... I don't think I, I'm intending to say that. I think that might be the case, but it's not going to be the case every time. What I mean to say is that, like, when you are concerned for what is true but not who the other person is that you're speaking to, you're not doing the truth you're proclaiming. That's why, when, oh, my God, like Ephesians 4, 17 or 19, um, Paul says that, that, that speaking the truth with love, we are formed and shaped and conformed and become and grow into the likeness of Jesus. It is actually the act of speaking truth with love that shapes our heart's affections toward Christ-like affections. So that's what I'm talking about. Second part. If so, it seems like growing divide among Christians is between those that feel they're living out the gospel by, as you said, telling their neighbors the truth regardless if they like it or not, and throwing off oppressors, and that those who are slow to speak, anger, etc., how do we show grace, engage them, and tame our own perception of how these Christians are missing the gospel? In other words, if, I'm, if, if what I'm saying is a parallel reaction that we often are tempted toward and the way that James' original audience is tempted toward, toward well, what do we do with that? Great question. Come back next week. We're going to keep talking in, through James, right? Because that's the whole point of the letter, okay? What it means, to, at least though, based on this passage, is be quick to listen, doesn't matter who we're talking about listening to. Start with God and then with our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Christ who we think are speaking truth without love to them. Okay? All right. I hope that was helpful. Um, if it wasn't, please tell me. I really actually do want to know. Um, as we move into communion, right, there is a knowing of the gospel 
that is informational. Okay? That is absolutely the case, and that is absolutely true. But we just got done talking about knowing in a different way, in a fuller way of knowing, being, and doing. That is why the sermon is, is intended to support and lead to this. Because there is a limitation to our only hearing the good news, right? To, it is the power of God, right? It absolutely is. And God invites us to something even more nourishing. And that is the sacrament of communion, okay? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, before he said, it is finished and complete, he took the bread, he was with his friends, the disciples, and he took the bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body, it is broken for you. This is true. This is what is true. Likewise, he took the wine, he poured it out, and he says, this wine is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins. This, this is how you are sealed, and this is how you become adopted sons and daughters of God. This is who you are in me. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this wine, you proclaim not just in word and information, but also in deed. And as you come up and take the elements and ingest the elements, you are proclaiming the good news in living it out among my body and taking my body. So if that, if you want to know that, this is for you. Let me pray.